Good afternoon. You could have a seat. And you could open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 14. 1 Samuel chapter 14. If you're new or visiting, we want to welcome you to Zoe Community Church. Even if you're not new, we want to welcome you. I actually wasn't here last week. I was sick, so I stayed home. Uh, and thankfully, Eric was back. And he was already on the calendar. It wasn't like I got sick and I called him up to preach for me. Um, but I was really thankful that he was here. And you know who else was thankful were the children's ministry volunteers? I heard that they were actually shocked that we finished on time. Parents were showing up at the scheduled calendar. Like, uh, like we have a timeline that we send to them. You know, we'll end around 2.45. And people were shocked that their parents, like the parents of the kids were showing up on time because it hasn't happened in three plus months. So uh, unfortunately, I influenced James to be more like me. Um, bad company corrupts good morals. Um, but anyway, Eric's back, so we're thankful. Um, and we're continuing our series through the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, if you've been here, we started in 1 Samuel 1-1, and we've been going through the book about a chapter at a time because it's a story, right? It's a narrative. It's told to us in these sequences of events. So we're trying to keep the story intact so today we're actually covering an entire chapter again, but this is a long chapter, okay? So I'm warning you, it's a little long, so we're going to do something a little different. If you're new and you're like, how come this guy's not reading the text first? Part of it is because it's so long, but part of it is because there are a lot of layers to the story, so I want it to kind of unfold as time goes on. So I'm going to read it as we go through it, okay? So I'm not going to read it in the front end, um, but just to let you know, there are a lot of twists and turns in the plot. A lot happens. There's a lot of detail. In fact, one writer said that this chapter in particular in 1 Samuel is a masterpiece of narrative storytelling. And you can see it, I think, once we actually start getting into the text, into the story, you'll see that it's a little bit more complex as a story than what we've seen so far. Um, that being said, of course, it's not just a story. This is the Word of God. But I don't want us to, you know, at the same time, ignore the literary element here. So anyway, I'm going to pray for our time. We will get into it, but I'm not going to read the text first, okay? Just to let you know, we're still teaching from the Bible. I didn't change. I'm not going to give you my thoughts about life. So let's pray. We'll ask the Lord to help during this time. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this afternoon. God, we, as James prayed, God, we ask that you would help us have the right hearts as we come before your word. God, we want to be humble. We want to be contrite in spirit. We want to tremble before it. But God, we struggle. We are hard-hearted. Oftentimes, we are slow to listen, slow to see. We're focused on our own things. There are distractions. God, I pray that during this time, our hearts will be focused on your word. And not just on the sermon or what I'm talking about, uh, but really on what your word has to say. God, because there is an important lesson for us to learn here. God, you wouldn't have written this word for us if there wasn't. So God, help us to receive it. And I pray that you'd help us to live differently. God, we need your spirit. God, we need your help. We need your grace. So we look to you. We ask that you would glorify your son during this time. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. There's this group in New York City called Improv Anywhere. 
Anyone ever heard of them? They're an improv group, okay, improvisational theater. Do you know what that is? It's where, like, people get up and act, but there's no script, right? They have, like, a situation where they got a prompt, and then they start to do, like, funny or kind of funny things. I don't really find it that funny personally, but I'm sure some people do. But anyway, Improv Anywhere, what they do is they do these spontaneous, off-the-cuff improv events. They perform in the streets of New York, okay? They don't have a stage. Their stage is the city. Basically, what they do is they do these elaborate pranks on people uh, as actors, Um, but they're not trying to, like, make people feel bad, or they're not trying to punk people. Really, what they're trying to do is to prank people in a good way to make them more happy, to uh, make them more joyful, to bring a little bit of uh, fun into their lives. So Improv Anywhere, that's who they are, and there was this one particular mission that I heard about. They called it the best gig ever. Okay, so they had these missions, and they would post them online. But in this, this mission, this event that they're going to do, what they did was they found a small band, okay, a band that's not that popular, that's brand new. And what they did is the whole troupe, they memorized all of the band's songs, the lyrics. They bought the merchandise, like the shirts and stuff. And what they were going to do was show up at one of their event, you know, one of their shows in New York City and pretend to be the most hardcore fans of their, you know, like that exists, right? So they were going to actually give them the best gig ever, let them be rock stars for a night. That was the intention, right? So they found this band, Ghost of Pasha from Vermont, brand new band, just a few songs, first tour ever, first time in New York City, and they memorized all the song lyrics, they bought the t-shirts, and they showed up at this venue. And just to give you some context, there were 38 total people at the show, 35 were Improv Anywhere agents, Okay, so only three people showed up, probably friends and family members, Um, but they act like they don't know each other. So one person comes in by himself, a couple comes in, a group of friends come in, and Ghost of Pasha comes out, and they're like, hey, we're Ghost of Pasha, and everyone loses their minds. They're like, woo, you know, like, we love you, and Ghost of Pasha's like, okay, great, awesome, and they start playing the songs, and all of the fans, or at least 35 of them, know every single word to every single song. They're like jumping around, they're dancing, they're singing, they're cheering, For that one night, they gave Ghost of Pasha the best gig ever, early on in their band career. And afterwards, Charlie, he's the leader, he's the founder and leader of Improv Anywhere. He goes, that was awesome. This was one of my favorite missions we ever did. Amazing. Mission accomplished. We had so much fun, and we blessed, he didn't say that, but we gave Ghost of Pasha a night that they would never forget, and he posted about it online, and they just went on to the next mission and the next mission. But here's a question, okay? Think about this. Even though Improv Anywhere had a great time, even though they had great intentions in wanting to help this new band have a great night, what do you think Ghost of Pasha thought about it? If you're being, like, objective. Like, what do you think their reaction was? Do you think that they experienced the pure awesomeness of having these 35 random people that they've never interacted with before, fans they've never heard about, just show up and pretend, not even pretend, just pretend to have a good time? How do you think that they felt when they saw these people just disappear right after the show? Mission accomplished. No one stuck around to talk to them. And how do you think they felt when they saw Improv Anywhere post about this online and all of these clicks and views start pouring in emails, joke articles about them? 
as the butt of this latest mission. I mean, even in the moment, they thought it was bizarre. Right? These people are like over the top, jumping around. We're a new, but how do they even know us? It's almost as if they were acting or pretending or something. See, here's the thing. Sometimes we don't see things, just in general, we don't see things the same way that other people do. Fair? Right? You can kind of see how this played out with the Improv Anywhere Best Gig Ever mission. Sometimes we don't see things the same way other people do. One man's trash is another man's treasure. And we all know this general truth to a certain extent in our own lives. And yet, even though we know it theoretically, I think it's scary how often we forget it in our day-to-day interactions, practically. I think it's scary how out of touch we can be with how others are perceiving what's going on. Maybe you think your marriage is fine. This has happened a million times. One spouse thinks the marriage is going great. The other one is on the brink of divorce. And it's a shock. It's truly a shock for that other person. Or maybe you thought you were killing it at work. You're probably the best worker there. You're the smartest. You're the most talented. That's why it felt like such a personal betrayal when you got let go. There are people in every family, every organization, every church who truly believe that they are the easiest person in the world to get along with, that they have the right motives all the time, and that everyone else they've ever encountered in their lives is just uh, difficult, you know, unusually so. I mean, you can hear it sometimes when people are talking about their lives. Yeah, I went to this place, and they were really mean to me. I went to this place, and they were terrible. My family is terrible. Oh, don't get me started on all my siblings, all my neighbors. We've arrived at an interesting uh, chapter, a text in 1 Samuel. Last week, we saw the first real cracks in Saul's kingship, how he not only disobeyed, but justified his disobedience. You guys remember that? Eric was talking about it. Saul is not exactly who we hoped he would be. The jury had been out on Saul. He had a lot of potential both for good and for bad. But last week we saw the bad, just the sheer foolishness of what he was capable of. Now, this chapter picks up on some of these same ideas where we left off and we learn more about Saul. But the Bible doesn't just tell us in this chapter. Hey, what the Bible does is actually tell us kind of this intricate story comparing Saul with his son, Jonathan, who we've only heard about up to this point. We haven't actually met him yet. And in doing this, in giving us kind of this day in the life of the Saul family, a day on the battlefield where a lot of drama comes out, what it does is it shows us kind of this bigger picture lesson that how we tend to read people and events and situations, just things in general, oftentimes isn't right especially when we compare it to how God is viewing the situation. I'll just put some of my cards out on the table right now. There's a way to read this text where you see Saul as kind of a good guy, at least at the end. But clearly the Bible is pointing us in the other direction. Why? It's to teach us something. The way we view certain things and the way God views certain things, the way God wants us to view certain things through his eyes, sometimes they couldn't be more different. So this is a chapter that teaches us to put aside our assumptions, to even put aside our own lenses, which we view the world through, and to put on God's lenses. 
Okay, so I'm not changing everything. We're going to have three points as we do, three headings by which we'll break the text down. First, the faith, the faith. Verse one, look at your Bible. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Now, understand the situation, okay? The story is being set up for us here. This follows on the heels of the last chapter. This isn't one random day, even though it says, and one day. Okay, this is the same general time period. The Philistine army is just across the way still. Saul has set up his little brand new Israelite army, 600 strong. And as we learned last week, this army is brand new, but it's also really makeshift. Okay, they don't even have weapons. Only Saul and his son Jonathan have proper spears and swords. Okay, so the Philistines, they got their bronze uh, military technology. They're advanced. They're powerful. The Israelite army has basically farm tools and two guys with swords. So the Philistines are there. They're powerful. They're a threat. Saul is waiting in a cave. And all we know here, I mean, we don't know why he's waiting, but what we do see is that he's just indecisive. We don't know why he's indecisive, but he's not doing anything. He's just waiting in a cave, in action, in decision. It's a nice cave, a pomegranate cave, but it's still a cave. It's not the best look. And it's into this situation, by contrast, Jonathan decides to act. And this is our first introduction to Jonathan. A lot of people tell me they love Jonathan because he's like David's friend. Okay, But actually, we meet Jonathan earlier, and Jonathan is a great guy from the get-go. Jonathan, uh, he decides to go with his armor bearer, just them two on their own to check out what the Philistines are up to. So verse four, within the passes, but which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes and the name of the other Senna. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. So the text is just showing us. Instead of just telling us Jonathan was brave or bold or decisive or unlike his father, they're showing us through action what he's willing to do. It's not a walk in the park, literally, right? He has to walk up like these craggy, like rocky areas. I remember when we went to Israel, they actually showed us. They said, you see those like mountainous areas over there? That's basically where Jonathan and his armor bearer went. And I was like, I don't even know what story you're talking about, but praise God. Uh, this is back in the day. But they showed us sheer rock faces on either side. He's on the low ground. It's him and his armor bearer. This is dangerous, but he's willing to go check it out. See, what we're seeing, what we're being shown is that Jonathan is very different than his father. He's decisive. He's bold. He's courageous. You know, I remember, um, to kind of change pace here a little bit, but I remember when the Columbine High School shooting happened. You guys remember that? I was in seventh grade, I think. So for me, even though I was a little bit younger, I think because I was a little bit younger, it really kind of like stuck with me. It freaked me out. And uh, I don't want to get like too into the details here. I know that there are young people here. But I was young when I heard about it. And I remember, you know, it was like the first like really big incident like that. I mean, Columbine today is still a byword, even though it's been over 20 years. 
But I remember there was this one incident that happened in particular that I read about or I heard about on the news or something where they asked, the two guys, they asked this girl, do you believe in God? Do you remember that? Do you believe in God? And she said, yes. And they said, why? I mean, these are the guys who are shooting up the school. And I remember that thought just kind of formed a loop in my mind because I was a Christian. I had been going to church my whole life, at least. I wasn't really a Christian, I found out later. But I was a professing believer. I believed in God. But I remember thinking, okay, this happened to me. And someone asked me, do you believe in God? Would I say yes? Because I kind of knew my Bible, right? I knew we can't deny Christ before we die, right? That's like the worst thing you could do. But then I was also kind of filled with doubt, too. Like, what if God isn't real? Like, I'm going to die when I'm 12 years old? No thanks, right? Like, I got a lot to live for, right? I got to grow up and be a 34-year-old pastor of a small church plant in Texas. Gosh, I have to fulfill my destiny. I mean, I was really thinking that. It was kind of scary for me. Would I have the courage to say yes? Would I have the boldness? Do I have the faith? And see, that's the issue. That's really what it comes down to in this text right away. This is what the book of 1 Samuel is showing us, that Saul, uh, unlike Saul, Jonathan at least, has the faith. His courage doesn't come from personality. Maybe that's part of it, but it doesn't say that in the text. His courage doesn't come from him being super strong or having superpowers, being like Samson, something like that. Jonathan's courage comes from his faith in God because this is what he says in verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by a few. Did you hear what he said? Nothing. Nothing. If you've been with us here through 1 Samuel, you know that basically no one has struck this right balance of faith yet. Some people, they were overconfident in a superstitious way. As long as we have the ark, we can't be defeated. We're unstoppable. They got humbled real quick because they weren't actually trusting in God. They were presuming upon God. Jonathan says, it may be. He doesn't think that God for sure is going to bless him. He's not that presumptuous. But then we've also seen how a lot of people didn't trust in God. They were scared. They were always fearful. They thought that as long as the other team is stronger, the other side has more weapons, as long as the other army is more powerful, then there's no way we can stop them. Is God real or not? Jonathan believes that God is real. We have not found faith like this in all of Israel. The faith of Jonathan, he gets it. If God is for you, then literally no one and nothing, not even the gates of hell can stand against you. Jonathan is absolutely confident in the Lord's power to work. Nothing can hinder him from saving by many or even by a few. This is the faith that can move mountains. Do you see that? Saul is a guy who's indecisive. Saul is a guy in a cave. Jonathan has the faith that can move mountains, and it's the faith that can move men as well. Look at verse 7. And his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. It's inspiring. When someone believes in God like that, it can inspire people. It can encourage people's faith. I mean, they're walking into a death trap, but he says, I'm with you. So here's the plan, verse 8. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men. We will show ourselves to them. And if they say to us, Wait until we come to you, 
then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hand and this shall be the sign to us. Now, there's a little confusion here. Here's basically what's going on. They say they're going to fight either way. Okay, we're going to challenge them. If they say, come up to us, we're going to go up and fight. If they say, we'll come to you, then we'll just wait and then we'll fight them when they show up. But he talks about this sign and it could be a little confusing. I don't think he was testing God here like Gideon. I don't think he had some supernatural revelation from God either that he was supposed to look for this kind of sign. I think what's happening here is actually pretty simple. Okay, if you think about the actual context that was given to us, right, he's going uphill, right? There's rocky, like, uh, surfaces, like cliffs that he has to climb up. It's narrow up there. So what he's saying is, if they invite us up, then we know that they're overconfident and we know that God is delivering them into our hands. If we go up too, it's narrower. We'll be able to fight one-on-one or two-on-two. It won't be like the whole army surrounding us. So we know that if they say this, then God is probably giving us favor. He'll take that as a sign. I think it's faith, really, in the context. So verse 11, so both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. They're pretty overconfident. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. I mean, that's literally what it says in Hebrew. We're going to show you something. Probably we're going to kill you. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which, which uh, Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. I mean, it's pretty straightforward what happened. He goes up there and he starts killing these Philistines. And the Philistines did not expect this at all. Two guys just showing up over the cliff. They start panicking. People don't know what's going on. There's chaos. There's confusion. Pretty soon, the entire army, the entire Philistine army is in disarray. Jonathan starts winning. See, all of this happened. No one would have expected this earlier that day. But here we are. Why? How? Because of the faith of one person. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by a few or by one. So here's a question. How is your faith? Not even how is our faith, right? I hear this a lot in church. I think this happens all the time. Like, what are we going to do about this situation? Or how is the church going to, how is your individual faith? Because if this is true, if this is how it works, if this is how God is, then one person, one of you, one of us, can literally change the world. Because it's not actually one of us. You see what I'm saying? It's actually God. But that kind of faith, that God can do this through even me, is exceedingly, extremely rare. I think a lot of people believe that God is real. A lot of people believe in God for the salvation of their sins. But do you individually believe that nothing can hinder God from saving by many or by a few? Do any of us have that kind of faith? I read a great great quote. Someone said, I don't even know who it was. It was like anonymous. But he said, one man with God is a majority. 
And yet, if there's one thing that I've learned over the past year, and really just over my life, but especially over the past year, is that Christians, by and large, are just as scared as anyone else of everything. Scared of dying. Scared of suffering. Scared of things that are happening in the world. Scared of things happening in our country. Scared of this person being in power or this person not being in power. Scared of what this person might do to me. Scared of the consequences of this or that or that. Christians are some of the scaredest people on the face of planet Earth. Just scroll through social media. So scared of the future. So scared of these people. So scared of these ideas. Scared of these dangers. And I preach to my, I'm the same way. It's humbling. I've learned that I'm scared too. I have a lot of fears myself that I struggle with. And don't get me wrong. Of course, there are important things going on in the world. And there are dangerous things out there. I don't think dying is a fun thing. But are we being real with ourselves? That's the question today. Of course, we're always going to struggle with fear. But are we being real with ourselves? Do we tell ourselves, do we compartmentalize our minds and our hearts? Do we tell ourselves, yeah, I believe in an almighty God who is good, who is for me, who can do anything, who is eternal, who is infinite, who can do anything he wants to at any time? And then do we turn around and worry 23 hours a day? Do we panic? Do we try to preach a gospel of fear to other people? Do we tell our family, you really got to worry about this. You're not taking it seriously enough. Open up your eyes. Look, again, there's a balance, okay? Don't get me wrong. But let's not forget that one man with God is a majority. I mean, if you're Saul, you should be scared from a human point of view. The Philistines are stronger. They're more powerful. You're going to lead people in. Some people are going to die under your charge. You might die. But Jonathan understands that it's not just 600 men. It's God. See, the interesting thing, too, about this text is that all of this takes place right after 1 Samuel 13 by design. And what do we find out in the last chapter? Do you remember? I think a lot of people were sick last week, so maybe you don't remember. But what happened was Saul sinned, in a nutshell, and God said, your dynasty is done. He didn't take the kingdom away from Saul. He didn't say, you're done being king yet. But he said, your family is never going to take the throne. What's the implication there? It's very obvious. Jonathan's never going to become king. Jonathan knows that. Everyone knows. Saul knows that. Samuel said it in front of everybody who's there. Jonathan is never going to become king. And then right after that, we see that Jonathan would actually be a way better king than Saul, right? Isn't that kind of interesting? And part of that, okay, part of that is to kind of contrast, you know, to show us how bad Saul is, the folly of Saul. But I think part of this is even deeper. Because what's our initial reaction? It's just to go kind of to follow along what Israel was doing with Saul, but to take it a step down. What do I mean by that? Okay, Israel was like, we want a king just like all the other nations. So God gives them the the tallest, most handsome king, a guy who's a warrior. And they're like, okay, I mean, he seems to have the right stuff. He has the muscles. Maybe he's not trained, but he seems good. They give him, or God gives them, excuse me, the most qualified king in a worldly sense. But we're more enlightened, right, than the Israelites. We're like, actually, the most qualified king is Jonathan because he has the most faith, because he's the boldest, because he's the most courageous. But the point of this text isn't to show us that Jonathan would be a great king. That's a moot point. In the will of God, Jonathan will never be king. 
So why are we shown this? I think the lesson is actually much simpler and much more profound. The lesson is God doesn't need anybody. Do you see what I'm saying? God is still king. That's kind of been the big lesson. No one deserves the favor of God. No one deserves the kingdom of God. Just because Jonathan is better than Saul doesn't mean that he deserves God to give him whatever he wants. Of course not. And Jonathan gets it. And I think that for me, this is why Jonathan is the best. One of the greatest characters, one of the greatest people, because he's a real person in all of scripture. It's because he doesn't want it. Even if he does want it, he knows he doesn't deserve it. He doesn't fight for it. What makes him most useful to God is that he embraces his expendability. He never fights to make himself king. Never. He never appeals to how much he might deserve it because of his faith. I mean, when David shows up, who's his replacement, basically, he does whatever he can do to make David king. Why? Because it's God's will. Whatever God wants. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by a few. No presumption, all faith. That's who Jonathan is. Christian, if you and I, if we would just humble ourselves, if we could put our agendas, our egos, our goals, our self-centeredness, our drama, our obsession with our own legacies and happiness and what we deserve aside, there's no telling what God can do through even just one of us. That's the lesson of Jonathan. Next, second point. It's not done yet, the folly. The faith of Jonathan, the folly of his father Saul. Jonathan is highlighted in the narrative in a big way to highlight his father's shortcomings, and there are many. And they paint a picture of a guy who is more, unfortunately, foolish than we even feared he would be. He doesn't know what he's doing. And you see this even in the beginning of the text, right? It starts off in the cave. Did you notice who is by his side? It's not Samuel. Samuel was for him, but Samuel rebuked him. I don't know. They went their separate ways, and now his spiritual advisor is not the prophet of God. It's Ahijah. And who is Ahijah? He is the nephew of Ichabod. Who is Ichabod? He's the son of Phineas. Who's, this, uh, who's Phineas? He's the son of Eli. All the way back to that old hat, right? Eli's house, the failed priesthood. They were corrupt. God rejected them. He said that we're done with Eli's line. So this is his spiritual advisor. We have the failed dynasty of Saul hooking up with the teaming up, like their powers combined with the failed house of Eli. This is not already inspiring a lot of confidence in me. And then skip down to verse 16. This is while Jonathan is fighting the Philistines. Just hear this, okay? And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. So they're watching the Philistine garrison, and all of a sudden it's like chaos over there. They're like, what's going on over here? Verse 17, then Saul said to the people who were with him, count and see who has gone from us. And when they counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul sees a commotion. He has no idea what's going on. Oh, we're missing someone? He doesn't even know who they're missing. It's his own son. I get the feeling like this is the kind of guy who loses his kid in the mall like every couple of years. So Saul decides to see God, I guess. That's kind of the way he does it. He's like, I guess bring the ark of God here, verse 18. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now, 
The Ark of the Covenant, right, we talked about this in 1 Samuel. I won't rehash it, but it represented God's presence with them. So Saul's like, bring it over to me. What is, it, what is his plan here? Is he going to talk to the Ark? You know, you could pray or you could go find Samuel and make a, like, it seems like he's flying by the seat of his pants. He doesn't know what to do. But then it doesn't even matter because he drops this plan because he sees that things are changing, verse 19. Now, while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand, like, never mind. Okay, we're going to do something else, verse 20. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was, was against his fellow. There was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time, who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. So basically the Philistines are fighting themselves. Saul just rushes in to kind of like fight a little bit too with his army. There's some Hebrews who defected or were captured or something. They start fighting the Philistines. Verse 22, some guys come out of holes. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. Like, I don't want to judge because I'd probably be one of those guys hiding in the holes, just to be honest. But it's pretty easy to join the battle when the other side's already running away. But good job, guys. So what happened was Saul gets in there. It's chaos. It's confusion. Verse 23, so the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. But that's not the end of the story. You think that this is happily ever after. They won, they defeated the Philistines. Yeah, hey, right, Jonathan, he's a hero. Verse 24, and the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it's evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. Okay, listen to what is going on here. Okay, the narrator says, okay, even though they won, it was really hard. They are hard-pressed. They are probably exhausted and tired. So, therefore, Saul decides to lay an oath on the people. Cursed be anyone who eats until I am satisfied with the victory. So none of the people had tasted food. It's pretty interesting. If you notice the contrast, God saved them, verse 23, through Jonathan, who was willing to put himself on the line. The very next verse, verse 24, they were hard pressed and they were even harder pressed because of Saul, who's willing to put his entire army on the line for his own ego. Now, when all the people, verse 25, came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath saying, cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. The whole eyes being bright thing, it's like his face kind of lit up. That's basically when he, he got energy. Okay. He was a little bit, uh, he was tired, but then he ate some honey and he got that sugar rush, whatever. But Jonathan, the guy God used, the man of faith, he didn't hear the oath. It's like a comedy of errors. No one's eating the honey. They're so hungry. There's honey right there on the ground, but they're scared of Saul. And Jonathan's like, oh, how come no one's eating the honey? And then he eats some. They're like, no, your, your father said, don't eat it. He's like, thanks for like telling me after. And Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. That idiom shows up in the Bible earlier. Okay, if you remember your Bibles in Joshua, 
There's a guy named Achan. He steals when he's not supposed to. He actually sins against the Lord. And they lose this easily winnable battle because of his sin. God is not with them because of that sin. And they say that Achan has troubled the land. Now, Jonathan is the one who broke the vow here. But Jonathan gets it. He says, it's actually my father who has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better... If the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. So he's basically telling us what's going on. They were hard-pressed. They were exhausted. They could have defeated the Philistines with a decisive blow. But instead, they're so tired they can barely fight. And it's because of Saul's rash vow. My father has troubled the land. Jonathan is not super disrespectful here. He knows his father is the king, and Jonathan has integrity, but he knows. He's like, my dad, man, what's wrong with this guy? The people are exhausted from not eating. Now they can't fight, and basically we're going to waste this victory, and now I'm cursed because I ate honey. Verse 31, they struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon, and the people were very faint. Repetition. Again and again, the people were very faint. Tell me without telling me that Saul's vow was a dumb mistake. The people were very faint. The people were very faint. The people were faint. Verse 32, the people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Now you might be like, okay, uh, what, what, what is going on here? So basically when they finally kind of finished fighting, They got the spoil, the animals, and they're so hungry. They just start eating these animals. They don't dress them properly. They don't follow the law because Levitical law says you can't eat meat with the blood. It's a sin. But they're so famished, okay? They're so, like, not in the right mind that they just descend upon this meat. They eat it. They sin. Verse 33, then they told Saul, behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, you have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. Now, they were sinning. This is breaking the law, but we've been here this whole time, right? You've been following the story. Listen to how Saul talks. You have dealt treacherously. Who's the cause of all of this? Who is the one that Jonathan knows, the guy who is godliest in this passage? Who's the guy who has troubled the land, quote unquote? It's Saul. Where's the accountability? You're the king. You made them take this oath for no reason. I mean, fasting is good, but why? He didn't talk about God at all. He didn't say fast because God will give you strength. He didn't say fast because we need to, we don't have time. We got to defeat them for the glory of God. He didn't say that. He just said, do it for me. I mean, all of this is rash. All of this is foolish. The only reason the people are tempted to eat the meat with the blood in the first place is because of Saul. Yet hear him from his own mouth. You have dealt treacherously. Roll the stone to me. I'll deal with this. You ever know somebody who has a problem kind of taking responsibility for the things that they do wrong? Don't uh, tell me who it is. I think a lot of us do, honestly. I mean, think about the last time you were confronted about something. Think about the last time your kid talked back to you. You say, nope. You got defensive. You argued back to them why they are wrong, and you're the almighty authority of your household. 
I mean, I've seen this all the time in church. This is why the Bible talks about being humble and taking rebuke. This is why it talks about being open to correction. Because a lot of us just aren't. It's like, hey, man, you know, what you said to my wife, like, really, like, was hurtful. They're like, oh, why are you so, uh, like, easily offended, man? Like, it's your fault. That's what Saul's doing here. It's your fault. Oh, the people are sinning? What's wrong with them? And Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people, verse 34, and say to them, let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat, and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. Notice this. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. The first time. He had never done this before. So Saul kind of fixes the situation, but he's so high and mighty about it. Oh, don't sin against the Lord anymore, you sinful people. Tone deaf. And we'll come back to this in a moment. But it says that it was the first altar he built. Maybe if he had built an altar before all of this, they would have had a place to to properly treat the animals. They had to cut the animals apart on the ground, it says. Saul wasn't thinking about it. Okay, it's only afterwards when people are like, oh, they're sinning. He's like, oh, why are you sinning? Come on, let me come over here. He didn't even think about it before. Verse 36. Then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let us draw near to God here. The priest is like, wait, you know, we should ask God. No one thought about it. And Saul, okay, he inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. You're going to ignore God all day, make it all about you. And then you forgot to ask God. And then you're like, oh yeah, okay, real quick. I'm going to pray. God doesn't answer. Verse 38, and Saul said, come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan, my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Okay, this is going, this is spiraling out of control. Okay, he's like, someone sinned. Okay, there's an Achan in the camp. Even if it's Jonathan, I will kill him. And people are like, oh, it's kind of your fault, but okay. Verse 40. Then he said to all Israel, you shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thuman. I'll explain that in a second. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan, and Jonathan was taken. Now, Real quick, the ancient Israelites had a system for kind of discerning the will of God. It was called Urim and Thummim. Yeah, you might have seen this in the Bible. The interesting thing about it is no one today has any idea how it worked. Okay, the people then all knew. No one wrote it down. And even the Jewish people, they don't know exactly how it worked today. But our best guess from context is it was like kind of like a dice system that the priest had. Where you would roll it, and if they matched up, on one side, it would be urine, Urim, and then the other side, it would be Thuman. And you would ask a question, right? Like, if, if uh, should I go here? Say Urim, right? And you'd roll it, and if it's Urim, then God is telling you to go, et cetera, et cetera. But if they're not matching, then God is not answering. That's kind of how we think it worked. But anyway, they do this system. They roll it. And the Hebrew people understood, right? There's no such thing as chance. The lot is cast into the lap. But its every decision is from the Lord, Proverbs 16, 33. 
So basically they do this. Saul makes the priest do it. And the lot says that it was Jonathan. And it was Jonathan who ate the honey. But this is what commentators always point out. Remember, this is an involved story. They point out, A, or one, that yes, Jonathan did, okay, he did eat of the honey. He did break the vow. Two, of course, God is in control. He has a plan. He is the one who caused the dice to land on Jonathan or whatever, however it works. And three, Saul is portrayed as a fool throughout this entire chapter, and Jonathan is portrayed as a wise and godly man. So this isn't what it looks like on the surface. If you take all three of these things into consideration, Jonathan is not Achan. Saul is the one who is troubling the land. Verse 43, Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. What great evil have you done, Jonathan? Right? How have you troubled this land, you wicked son? And Jonathan said, I tasted a little honey with the tip of my staff that was in my hand. That's the big sin that he did. Here I am. I will die. And some people think that he's being, like, sarcastic here. We can't tell from the language itself. Maybe he was. But I feel like Jonathan is just, he knows, right? This is how my dad is. It's ridiculous. Okay, I guess I'm just going to die for eating honey. Go ahead. See, when the words come out of his mouth, the entire situation is exposed for how ridiculous it truly is. I mean, Saul is dramatically over the top, over, over dramatically serious about this. Tell me about your evil. All he did was eat some honey. He didn't even hear the oath. There was no commandment of God that was broken, but Saul, man, he decides he's going to actually do it. Saul says in verse 44, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. It's crazy how it gets here in one day, right? Jonathan is the guy who saves them. He's the man of faith. He eats some honey and Saul is going to kill him. And the people are like, uh-oh, he's really going to do it. Okay, we've got to step in here. Verse 45, then the people said to Saul, shall, shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Probably offered some sacrifices for him, something. But whatever they did, they stepped in, verse 46, then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Now, that was a lot of story. I realized that was a lot of text. That was just like straight exposition. But what's the takeaway here? Okay, you kind of got the bits and pieces down. You understand what happened, but what does it mean? Throughout this text, Saul is contrasted with Jonathan. But it's not so much that Saul is evil and Jonathan is good. It's more so that Saul is just foolish in the biblical sense of the word. There are just certain things, right? He's indecisive. He hides in a cave, even though he has the Spirit of God upon him. He has Eli's household as his spiritual like advisory board. Not smart. He doesn't know what's going on. Uh, if the ark is the presence of God, don't you think you should go before it instead of bringing it before you? But he does these like little disrespectful things that show that he kind of is clueless. Then he waves it away. Right? He waves God away. Okay, I'm going to jump in the battle now. It seems like a good time. He makes an oath for no scriptural reason, an oath that doesn't mention God at all. He builds an altar after the people's sin. He gets all serious about how Jonathan, his own son, broke his foolish command, even though we know by now that he's a guy willing to break God's commands and to make excuses about him. He's a guy who honors his own word 
above God's word? If you sum it all up, what do we see? We see a fool. Now, why do I call him a fool? Because the fool says in his heart, Psalm 14.1, there is no God. Have you heard that before? Christians like to bring that up to kind of like slam atheists. Like, you're actually a fool, even though I don't know what you're talking about at all. But it's not just the person, right? It's not just the, the fool isn't just the person who says with his mouth that there is no God. The fool is the person who says in his heart, there is no God. You can say with your mouth that you believe in God, that you honor God, that you're all about, you can be the most religious person. But if you live, if you act, if how you operate at a fundamental level is as if God doesn't exist, that's what the Bible is calling a fool, and that's what Saul is doing. Because Saul is so religious here. Doesn't he have a priest with him to help him? Doesn't he have the ark of God? Doesn't he make an oath that sounds kind of biblical a little bit? Doesn't he fight God's battles against God's enemies? He built an altar. He cared about sin when everyone was talking about it. He's serious about his oath with Jonathan. Do we ever live like Saul? Of course, our situation is different, right? We're not kings. We're not fighting battles like this. But do we ever live without thinking about God, even though we're doing all these things kind of around him? You know what I mean? Like sometimes, even like how we talk, right, and how we kind of plan our lives. This year, I'm going to get serious about church. I'm going to church this year. Okay, I'm going to start serving. I'm going to wake up early. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to pray an hour a day. And sometimes we talk like this without mentioning God. Why are you reading the Bible? Why are you praying? Why are you going to church? You see what I'm saying? Sometimes we sin in secret, right? And we care so much about hiding it, right? Our reputation matters. Our image matters so much. And we're so careful. But in private, we don't care at all. That's foolish. And I've done it. I've cared more about what you guys think than what God thinks. We all do it. But let's call a spade a spade. It's foolishness. And look at Saul, man. He's so religiously, uh, so religious in an outward way. He's not thinking about God. Sometimes I think the most foolish fools are the religious fools. We go through the motions. We craft our image. We make vows. It's not for God. We preach sermons. We share the gospel. Right? We serve. It's not for God. It's for me. Check out how servant-hearted I am. I want that girl to see how I play guitar or whatever. In my case, I don't want her to see that because it would hurt me. But you know what I'm talking about. We get self-conscious instead of God-conscious. We show for church as if the body of Christ existed for me. And all of these things can be painted over with the veneer of godliness, but it's really foolishness. I'm just so discerning. That's why I'm always looking at all these churches critically, right? right? I don't sing very loud for God because I don't want to be a distraction. I don't serve because I really want to find where I'm gifted and use that gift wisely. Look, okay, I, there, there's something to that, but I'm just saying if underneath that, the root of it is godlessness, then it's foolishness. And this leads to the final point. Quickly now, the failure. The failure. 
you can just tell uh, the children's workers that uh, I'm back. Right? It's not Eric. Okay, so anyway, the failure, the failure. After the best gig ever, I wanted to come back to this. After the best gig ever, mission was complete. Improv Anywhere posted the mission online. Okay, I hinted at this a little bit. They posted it. It took three days for Ghost of Pasha to find out about it. It's because people were, like, making fun of them online, sending them emails, like, tagging them in different things. And it was terrible. They felt like they got punked. And from their perspective, they did. Right? Because it was all fake. These weren't real fans. They go to their next show, and three people are there. Right? They're, they're an up-and-coming band. They're trying to succeed. This doesn't help them in any way at all. It makes them a joke. But here's the thing. At the same time they felt this way, Charlie and his crew were on top of the world. Mission accomplished. We helped these guys out. It was so awesome. Think about that disconnect. I mean, presumably, what Improv Anywhere was doing was trying to help these people, trying to give them something good. But if it wasn't good for them, was it good? And that's the funny thing. The stated goal was to make this band feel good. I just think about this Charlie guy. You say you want to bring joy to people, and maybe you do sometimes, but this time you weren't thinking at all. I mean, I think about Charlie, right, bro? It's like you weren't thinking about what they actually wanted, what they actually cared about, what would have actually made them feel good in the first place. Why am I preaching to Charlie? He will never hear this. Because we need to think about what God actually wants. You see what I'm saying? What God actually wants, what God actually cares about, what would actually please God in the first place. When I think about improv anywhere, I think about people who are trying to do something good, and maybe their intentions are good, but they're not going all the way. They're not thinking about the recipient. And if our lives are for God, when was the last time you thought, what does God actually want? Maybe we do all these things we want to do, and then we say it's for God. right? Like, God, when I get really famous, I'll give you a shout-out on TV right? When I have a lot of money, I'll give a lot to the church. When my family's taken care of, right? I'm I'm sure they'll live for you too. What does God actually want? See, this chapter ends in a somewhat odd way. After chronicling Saul's folly, it ends with a summary of how great of a king Saul was from one perspective. Look at verse 47. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. And check this out. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly. And he struck the Amalekites. And he delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. In terms of what the people wanted in a king, you couldn't have done better than Saul. He did it all. He fought everyone who needed to be fought, and he won. Easy. His overall military record was dominant. His results were stellar. And Saul was a family man, verse 49. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malkishua. And the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merab, and the name of the younger, Michal. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul. And Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. His son was a man of strength. His daughter married the next king. He didn't have, like, multiple wives. From the outside, there was, like, no drama, okay? He had a pretty good, happy family. His cousin Abner was the leader of the military. He kept it close, verse 52. 
There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached them to himself. He was flanked by the best of the best. Saul was one of those, one of those leaders, right? You hear CEOs say that today where it's like, oh, I want to be the dumbest person in the room. I just get people who are smarter than me. That's how we built Amazon. That's how we built Apple. We just got the smartest people. That's what Saul is like. He's a CEO. He's a general. He's everything that you want. Maybe. I mean, what more could you want? I mean, isn't this good? You win a lot. You have a nice family to outsiders. Kids are doing well for themselves. You're surrounded by the strong and successful. You help people too on the flip side. You could talk me into saying that Saul was a massive success. From one angle, you could say that he was better than David. You could say he was better than a lot of people. But what about God's perspective? Why do you think God gave us the beginning of this chapter? And last chapter. And why is God going to give us the next chapter after this where Saul messes up again? It's because God wants to show us that the way that he sees is not how we see. We see certain things and we say that is great. And I know we're conditioned to not like Saul already if you've been around in church. But I want you to think about your own life for a second. Are all the things that you're living for and striving for and pushing for, the things you want to be known for and remembered for, are they the things that God actually wants for your life? The simple warning of 1 Samuel 14 is that you can be a huge success in the world's eyes and people's eyes and tragically in your own eyes and be a failure in God's eyes because you cared about the wrong things from the get-go. And I don't want that for you. I don't want that for me, hopefully. I don't want that for our church. Care about what God cares about. Start with that. Start with pleasing him in your own individual life. As Zoe, I am like anti-movement. And it's because I know in me, I would like our church to be really successful. Why not? It'd be awesome for me. But I don't want us to get caught up in something where we forget God. Start with pleasing him today in little things, being obedient in the things that you are called to, that you know that you're called to. Serve him not to highlight your gifts or serve him if it's, even if it's inconvenient because the greatest in God's eyes are the slaves of all. Let's put our money where our mouth is when it comes to these things. Love people, your neighbor, your brother, your enemy, because God loved you. Repent. Repent. It doesn't matter if you're rich or successful or influential or well-known. It could help. Those things aren't bad necessarily. But those things, mark my words, don't make you great. In no way. It doesn't matter if you have the best family life ever, if your reputation is the best, if you have the best friends ever, if you get to hang out with your cousin the rest of your life, building your business, your kingdom. That's cool. But that's not the best life You see what I'm saying? They don't make you truly great in God's eyes. It comes down to you and God. So start with him. We'll close here. Improv Anywhere did this fake birthday thing. This is their other failure. They did a fake birthday where they showed up at this bar and they targeted this kid who, uh, his name was Chris, but they're all going to show up and say happy birthday, Ted, to this guy. I don't know. It was a weird idea. They brought gifts So he's at the bar just hanging out by himself, and then they show up, and they're like, what's up, Ted? Happy birthday. And he's like, oh, I'm not Ted. They're like, Ted, stop joking around, man. 
And they give him a gift, and he shows them his driver's license. He's like, no, actually, it's Chris. And they're like, no, Ted, come on, man. You're always such a jokester. And they kept doing it, like, again and again, like, dozens of people. So finally, Chris is like, I guess I'm Ted for the night, right? So he plays along. He hangs out with them. He has a great time. He's pretending. Later on, he gets on the phone with Charlie, the leader of Improv Anywhere. He's like, you know what? I was just faking it, dude. Like, I actually hated it. Because Charlie was like, oh, man, it was awesome to see you have a good time. Right? Wasn't that great? And he's like, no. Like, it was terrible. Like, I was just pretending. And the funny thing was, when I was reading about it, is that Charlie was hurt by this. He was like, how could you pretend to have fun when I was trying to give you joy? He felt played. But then he understood. I think for the first time in his life, he understood how his pranks could be perceived by others. Oh, now I get why, like, Ghost of Pasha and other people didn't like it because people don't like fakeness. And Charlie felt bad. It was his first real wake-up call. And this is the thing, okay? If this isn't a wake-up call for us, if Saul's life isn't a wake-up call for us, I'm not sure what will be. Saul lived his whole life for himself. So if we can just hear, if we have ears to hear, hear. If you've been living for the wrong things, it's not too late to start afresh. If you've been living for yourself, if you've been building your own worldly legacy, it's not too late to start over and turn around and to repent and to start living for what's actually most important. Today is the day that you can change. Today is the day to repent. Today is the day to think about what God would actually want. You can start today with God. Will you bow your heads with me? Will you bow your heads? Close your eyes. I'm going to read to you from Philippians 2 as we close this time in prayer. The Apostle Paul writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Father, we, we come before you as people that you have made and created. God, you made us in your image to live for you and to give you glory. But God, we go astray. We are sinners. We live for ourselves. God, we know that there is punishment for our sin, death, and in, and in eternity and hell. But God, we know especially those of us who know you. We know what you're really like. We know that our example and our model and our Savior is Jesus, a greater Jonathan, a son who was completely innocent in every way, but who died for us. He didn't live according to his own will. He lived for yours. And he has given us 
and salvation, God, and righteousness that we don't deserve. And I pray, God, that if no one, if there's someone here who doesn't know you, God, I pray that they would receive that righteousness by faith. And I pray for those of us who do know you, God, that we would look to Christ right now. That we fall short, we have his righteousness. We fall short, we have his example. Let us walk in his steps by the Spirit, God, by your mercy and by your grace. God, this time we want it to be about you. Let us sing for you now. God, let us fellowship for you now. Praise in your Christ's name. Amen.